0: My name is Randall. I'm one of your pastors. What's up, boys? What's up, girls? Hello. i got to say hi to my people. All right. Hey, so I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever you got in front of you, straight to the table of contents. OK, do not attempt on your own to try to find the book of Obadiah. Don't try it straight to the table of contents because here's the deal if you're honest with yourself as you walked in here today you had no clue that there was a book in the bible called obadiah let's just get real honest. last week when josh was up here and he's preaching through amos he's like i'm gonna tell you about this guy amos who's super famous most of you thought cookies right so we don't like we go through the minor prophets and let's just get real some of these names are new to us For the first time, so you'll never find the reason you'll probably never find it. Just trying to flip, even if it's on your tablet, trying to flip through, is because it's it's one chapter. It's one it's it's 21 verses. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. Okay, it's Obadiah. Say it together, Obadiah. That's right. It's written for people just like you and me. It's written for people who would step back and look around and observe and watch and go, God, where's the justice in this world? People who would cry out, say, God, the system seems to be broken because there seems to be a lot going on that just, it doesn't seem like it's working. And so my hope and my prayer is that this becomes some of your favorite 21 verses in all of the Bible. It's Obadiah we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Hopefully, you've come close to finding it. If not, that's okay. Before the end of my message, you'll get there. So I've got to tell you this. It's going to be tough to understand what's going on. So I'll, I'll say this. In, in grab, I mean, it, it, of course, I got the shortest book. That makes sense for me to get the shortest book, right? They're not going to give me some big, long one. And so it's the shortest. But there's, there's a lot that we don't know. We don't know exactly the time frame that this was written. There's a couple of different ideas. We don't actually know who Obadiah was. So you go back and you go through a lot of the other minor prophets you can track. Like here's what they did for a living. Here's like, but we don't know. We just simply don't know. So there's there's, but but what we do knew do know. Excuse me, for certain, is we know like that God's got some things to say to a group of people. Okay, so we're gonna dig into this um, nine verses real quick up front. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. Take a note of that. We have heard a message from the Lord, in. Envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and you make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. But you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors Tamon, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's or Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. These are not awesome words if you happen to find yourself being an Edomite or some apparently somehow related to some guy named Esau. Okay, so those are nine verses and those nine verses begin to create an atmosphere and context and an environment as we move ahead. And it sets the tone for the entire book of Obadiah. And and I understand right now sitting there, you probably have a lot more questions than you have answers. We don't know that much about some of the context here. But what we do know is that God is very, very, very unhappy with the Edomites And and somebody named Edom or or somebody named Esau. And here's the deal. Every time we go to the Bible, every time you kind of open it up, and if you stop and you land on a place where God is upset at some people, you should stop you should take interest in that very highly, right? You should underline it. You should star it up. You should highlight it, whatever it takes. But when you get to the portion of scripture and God's angry at somebody for something they did, you better stop and pause, right? You should read it. And not so much because you're like a, like a biblical history nerd. Okay. But just simply because you want to ask who are they and what did they do? You want to know who they are and what did they do. And you want to ask that question because you want to make sure that you don't find yourself on that page with them. You want to know what they did to tick God off because you don't want to do that thing. Like whatever they did that that God is so upset about, please, God, I need to know because I don't want to do it. Because here's the deal. Simple truth is if it made God angry, then I'm going to guess it makes God angry. Now, same God. He doesn't change, okay? So if it made him angry then, it probably makes him angry now. Here's the simple truth that I think we can wrap our minds around this morning. The way that God dealt with people then is the same way that he deals with people today. And if if God's so just like really raging at the people of Edom, this tribe of Esau, we should really want to know, who are they and what did they do? So what we kind of need to do here real quick this morning is, is we need to get to the story behind the story. How many of you go, I've heard the name Esau before? Right. We're kind of we kind of get that. So we need to get some context for the story behind the stories. That's going to help us to understand the story that we're going to look at today. Okay? and we're doing this because I want you to understand where's Edom coming from? Where's this Esau? Who is this? And what's the story? So, so do this. I don't care what you grab right now, but grab something. It can be it can be the finger of your neighbor. And if you found Obadiah, stick something in Obadiah. Because if you don't, we're going to have to walk through all that again. You're never going to find. Okay, so six something in Obadiah and then turn to Genesis chapter 7. That's not quite where we're going to launch, but we'll get to Genesis um, 27 here in a sec. Here's a story super quick. Isaac and Rebecca, heard of them? Good. All right. Thanks. Rebecca's pregnant. She's got twins. They're inside of her. They're jostling. They're wrestling. God says there's going to be two nations inside of you that you're going to give birth to. These guys are, they're wrestling in the womb. It's Jacob. It's Esau. Esau was red and he was hairy. His nickname was Edom. Um, Jacob is smooth. He's kind of a mama's boy. He probably, you know, um, and, uh, like uh, Esau comes out, he's hairy. He's a man. He probably drives a truck. Esau's smooth. He probably drives a Prius. Okay. Esau hunts and kills. Jacob stays at home and he makes arts and crafts. Okay. Um, and the closest I can come to it is, is this guy right here. Like I found an example of an Esau kind of guy, right? He's, he, he's, I'm a little bit hairier than him right now, but he's hairy. He hunts, he kills things. He eats meats. He drives a truck. Okay. So this guy, I don't know where I could look to an example of kind of a guy that's like, Oh, I'm more concerned about clothes or I'm, you know, I'm maybe a little bit more smooth or I don't know where I would come up with an example for that to kind of differentiate. But let's just say, we know, think Esau, think this guy here. Okay. So here's what goes on. You, you, like so this whole thing happens. Basically, Jacob trades Esau's birthright for some bean soup. OK, and then Jacob goes on to trick Isaac into getting Esau's blessing. That's the story. OK, so there's tension. Their relationship is filled with a lot of like kind of anger at each other for, for some things that happened between them. OK, so then check out Genesis chapter 27, verse 39. It kind of sets the whole thing up. 27, 39. This is this is after Jacob has tricked um, Isaac into giving him Esau's blessing. That's a huge deal. That meant that everything that was coming to Esau is now coming to Jacob. Okay, so Esau says this. Isaac says this to Esau. His father, Isaac, answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness. This is after Esau has begged and pleaded Isaac to, to give me whatever's left over. This is what Isaac has for him. He says, Away from the dew of heaven, you will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off of your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, "The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I'm going to kill my brother Jacob." Okay, so this is a slightly dysfunctional family, slightly. Okay, which I love because that means that God can use all of us. Okay, so here's what the story is: This um, Esau is basically saying this, like, "Dad's going to die, right? Dad's going to, dear old dad. We're going to have a funeral, for dear old dad. We're going to stick him in the ground, and then I'm going to kill my brother." Okay, that's what's going on here. That's the context. So then Rebecca hears about this. She loves Jacob more. She sends Jacob away to go live with some distant relatives in order to save his life. Esau goes off to his own land. Esau's nickname is Edom. He starts the who? The Edomites. Jacob starts the Israelites. We have the genesis of a family feud that's going to continue for generations. But in this family feud, Richard Dawson is kissing no one. Okay? Nobody over here knows who Richard Dawson is. Some people around here do. We're good to go. If you don't, don't worry about it. I just aged myself quite a bit. So fast forwarding through 600 years of history. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, 400 of those years of that 600 of history, Jacob's kids were in captivity in Egypt. So you know the story. I don't need to go into all of that. Other than that, they fled from Egypt, they're trekking through the desert, they're on the way to this place that is called the Promised Land, and they want to get to the Promised Land. There's this huge group of wandering, ragtag refugees, they have to walk through the middle of another nation before they get to the place called the Promised Land. Guess what nation they have to walk through? It starts with an E, don't worry, you'll get it, you're not that dumb. Eat them. There we go. All right, good job. I'm not much of a pun guy, but I just threw one out, so... Edom. Okay. So they have to get, they have to go through Edom to get to their promised land. And Moses, as we know, he's this awesome leader. He's this incredible, wise and smart leader. And so he wants to honor the Edomites. He knows the tension. He knows the story. He knows, Hey, these are two brother nations. They share this bloodline, but they've been going at it for a long time. There's, there's, there's blood in this family line here. We need to set this straight. So Moses is like, hey, Edom, can we pass through? We want to honor you. Can we pass through to get to the promised land? And Edom comes back and says, no. Moses asks again. Edom says, no. Moses asks one more time, can we pass through? We'll stick to the king's highway. Then the Edomites get all Gandalfy on them. They're like, you shall not pass, right? So 600 years after the birth, after all this trouble, 600 years later, these two brothers, they're still wrestling. They're fighting, they're tormenting each other. And Israel is trying to say here, man, I know that this thing did not get off to a good start, but I think we have a chance and an opportunity to set it straight here, right? We we just try to see it my way. We can work it out. It'll be okay. So fast forward another like 600 years to the book of Obadiah. And man, we are Marty McFlying through this real quick. We just just went through like 1,200 years of history. So we're going to go back to Obadiah now. So that's the story behind the story. I went quick. Did you catch it? You know it. Good. Let's get back to Obadiah. We read only nine verses, nine verses of God saying these. This is the people, They're brothers. This is the Israelites. Here's the Edomites. Here's this is this is what I'm going to do to you. So we so we understand the story behind the story. But we still have to ask why. Why in those nine verses is God saying I got some issues with you guys? Is it because God's upset at them because they wouldn't let the Israelites pass through? Is God like, hey, remember a long time ago, you wouldn't let the Israelites pass through to get the promised land. That's what I'm holding against you. It's not that. That seems a little strict, God. Is it because that the Edomites have been a little vindictive over the fact that they got tricked out of their blessing over some soup? Is that what God is holding against them? That doesn't seem fair, God. That was a long time ago. But as we're going to find out, that might have been the beginning. But here's the real reason, and this is why we should pay close attention. Here's the real reason. Here's the things that God has against them. So we're going to kind of wrap our minds around this we're going to go through this kind of quickly but we want to see we want to know god who are they what do you have against them we don't want to do that thing we don't want to do that thing okay so here's what god has against the edomites first one is this first strike against them is this edom took pride in their position they took pride in 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 everything that was around them so the first thing that god really says to them is that you're a prideful people and guess what i'm god I hate pride. It's okay. I'm God. I can hate pride. And, and, and it speaks right into verse 2 of Obadiah. God says, See, I will make you small among, among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down? Well, I think we all know, as Mr. Johnny Cash said, Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. Right? Who's going to bring me down? Though you soar like the eagle and though you make your nest among the stars, from there, I will bring you down. You're a proud people. I'm God. I hate pride. I'm going to bring you down, declares the Lord. To which I would ask, begs the question, well, what's so cool about Edom? What do they have to be prideful about? Right? What do they have going for themselves that was so Special. Here's what's so special about them because of the geography of the land, because of where they lived. They essentially had the most defensible city in the whole region. They were high up in the rocks. It was a, this kind of rock fortress. You had to you had to go through this like mile long cave where you could only maybe walk like side by side to get to it. No army could come in and conquer. Right? So they had the most defensible city in the whole region. Because of that, they had powerful alliances and connections with their neighboring, because nobody could come in and attack them, so you might as well be their ally. Okay? And so because of those powerful connections and, and because of the alliance that they had, they had, they had incredible amounts of wealth. They had great places to store them. They store them in rocks, not in tents. Okay. It's hard to get to their wealth. They had all these great scholars and all these wise men serving them. They had this incredible infrastructure built up to their city. All right, so it's just a laundry list of what did they have going for him? Well, wealth, check, impenetrable fortress, check, smartest people, check, treasures hidden in a rock that nobody could get to, check, best allies, check, incredible city, beautiful city, check, okay? And then God shows up and says, because you come from that place, that land, you're boastful and you're proud and you look down physically, but really beyond that, you look down on everyone else around you because you've made it all about you you think it's all about you. And God says, the first thing I have against you is the pride that you have in where you live and where you come from, right? You're thinking that you're indestructible. You think that the people in your community are are well above the income, the average income of anybody else around you. You think because you live in a place of highly educated and trained professionals and equipped scholars, because the place that you live in is beautiful, has great parks, because your wealth is stored up. In rocks, and you've accumulated a lot of it, and holy smokes, are you guys getting a little tension here? This is starting to sound like a little familiar to us, Corvallis people, right? Let's let's just be honest. Let's be honest about who we are. Let's be honest about who we are as Americans, right? No matter what you think, we are the richest people in the world, absolutely. No matter where you find yourself today, you are still amongst the richest people in the world. And God's saying, man, if you think because You've done something for yourself to gain this. You're taking pride in that. I'm going to to take issue with that. Because if you solely depend upon yourself and your wealth and your wisdom, God says, I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to bring you down. I've got an issue with that. Now, I don't know about you, but I have this like inherent kind of thing inside of me that I would love to make life all about me. And if I'm honest, I would like to make your life all about me. I would like for you guys to think about me all the time. I would like for everything to revolve around me and be about me. I mean, I would like to make life about me, right? I don't know where that comes from, but I'd like, you know, and it's easy to look at the things that, that that I have, and it's easy to look at my success, and and I can have a, a tendency to kind of have this desire to make it all about me. I've worked hard for it right? I've perfected my skills. I've made good decisions along the way, and I've put myself in this place. I have arrived. I'm successful today because of what I've done for myself. I'm an American. Got some big boots and some straps to pull them up by. I'm going to do this for myself, right? And and we have this part of us as fallen humanity and our sin nature that always tries to make us proud of what we think that we've accomplished or accumulated. We find our security in it, don't we? Right We build it up, we accumulate it, and then we start to go like, "Yeah, I did this, and, and I've made some security for myself." But God looks at them, and he looks at them, and he just says, "The pride of your heart, verse three, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride will always lead you to boast in your position. It's always going to lead you to, to, to make you believe that you had more to do with your success than you actually had to, than you actually did, right." It's going to lead you to, to think like, man, like I've made this. But let me ask you a question. Did you, did you choose to be born here? Did you choose which family you were going to be born in? Did you choose like, oh, I'm going to be born in America, right? Did you choose what socioeconomic class you were going to be born into? You didn't get to choose that. You had nothing to do with that. Just think about this. If you would have been born 1,100 miles south of here in some shanty town in Tijuana, different story. Just be honest about it. Your life would have a different story. So you have no choice in that. You did nothing ultimately to get the things that you have, the success, the success that you cherish. Really? Is it, is it about you? Because we didn't get to choose most of those things. And yet somehow we still make it about us, right? I've not given myself the gifts and abilities that I have, God has, right? Somehow I still want to make it about myself. I've not given myself the, the talents and the treasures that I have, God has, but somehow I still want to make it about myself. So, so let's just be real careful. When we look at where we live and how we live and who we live with and the riches that we have accumulated to provide us with some safety and some security, let's be real careful with that because pride and taking pride in that and thinking it was about us has a way of saying, you know, you earned it and you're entitled to more I'm a self-made man. I'm smarter than others. It's about me. And we can, we can so easily fall victim to the pride that we would take in our position, the heights and the rocks that, that we dwell in and the things that we have accumulated. We can take pride in those things, and it makes you think you're entitled to it, that you're better, and it makes you look down on others. So, so this is just, here's the deal. Strike one against the Edomites. That's a big swing and a miss right there, right? That's pretty big. God saying, I'm going to cut you down because of that. So that's a big, straight, big swing and a miss right there. That's just the beginning, though. So verse 10, we'll go on. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. God's going to destroy them forever. That's, a, that's big. God's saying, I'm not going to destroy you forever because of your pride. He didn't say at the end of pride, I'm going to destroy you forever, right? He's saying that why I'm going to destroy you forever is a different reason. He's like, with the pride thing, I just wanted you to know, it's not about you. It's not all about you. You did nothing to get you to where you are today. It's all about me. I give all good things. So I just wanted you to, I just wanted to cut you down a little bit. I wanted to knock you down a little bit with the pride thing. But why I'm going to destroy you forever is this, right? It's because of what you did to my kids. That's why I'm going to destroy you forever. So what did they do? On the day you stood aloof. While strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So strike two against Edom was really about Edom's response to when they saw their neighbors, when they saw their brother nation, when they saw them being oppressed, they saw these wild injustices happening against them, their response, indifference and do anything. It wasn't really what they did? It was the fact that they didn't do anything. Their response to need was indifference. So God's saying, because you just stood back and you actually did nothing, you're just as guilty as the people who came in and raped and pillaged and destroyed my kids. You saw the need, you saw injustice, you saw oppression, and you did nothing. Right, so we've got, to, we've got to wrestle with this. We've got to grasp this this morning. Sometimes doing nothing is just as bad as the sin that we're doing and committing. Look at James 4.17. You don't have to turn. No, I got it for you real quick. Okay? I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I can say this. Distance yourselves from me. I hate this verse. I don't know. I know. I don't know if you can say that about the Bible. Is that okay? But I kind of don't like this verse. You ready for it? I kind of don't like it because it's so incredibly true. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin for them. Really? Really, God? So there's things that I can do that I do all the time that are sin, and you're going to hold them against me? And now all of a sudden, I mean, I got, I got trouble enough keeping track of the wrong things that I actually do. But now all of a sudden, I've got to pay attention to the things that I should be doing that I don't do, and if I don't do them, it's sin. Really? That's a tough verse. If you do nothing, by doing nothing, it's a sin. And God's just going, you guys, I've blessed you. I've made you the richest people on earth. And don't kid yourself, we are. And if you see a need and you stand aloof to it, I'm going to count that against you. I'm going to hold that against you. You guys, we are so blessed and we are so blessed to be a blessing to others. And we've been given so much and we've been given so much so that we can give to others. And God's saying, if you just sit back and count and accumulate and store up and take pride in what I've given you. And you don't freely give it and use it and stand up for oppression and injustice. Yeah, I'm absolutely going to count that against you. We're going to have a conversation later on. You're not going to like it. But even those two reasons, I mean, that's stacking up two strikes right there. okay? but even those two reasons, man, that's God. God, this is not even really the reason that God went all in against the Edomites. You ready for some more? Two big strikes. Here's the third one. Verse 12. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. So third strike against the Edomites. All right. They saw people. They saw people that were being victimized, that were being oppressed, that were being marginalized. They were vulnerable. Not only did they not do anything, they actually jumped in and took advantage of those people. They robbed from them for their own gain. So what's going on here is that Israel had been ransacked and taken over by the Babylonians. And, and their neighbors, their brothers, the Edomites, their brother nation, they stood up on the rocks. They stood up in their high and lofty place that they take pride in. They looked down on everybody else. And they said, we're not doing anything. We're not going to help you at all. We're not going to stand up for you. We're not going to stand up for oppression. We are, we're going to watch it happen. We're going to stand aloof to it. But then when the gates come crashing down, on your cities, when the battle is over, we're going to march straight in. We're going to sweep in and we're going to pick over your bodies like vultures for our own gain. Robbing and looting. So on that day, kind of what happened, the few remaining Israelites, the, the ones that kind of fled and, and they made it out of the cities alive. And they had whatever they could carry on their backs, whatever possessions they had. The Edomites met them at the crossroads and slaughtered them and took those possessions and sold them. If you didn't have any possessions, you made it out of the city, you literally had nothing besides the clothes on your back, well, the Edomites would round you up, sell you into slavery to the Babylonians. God's saying, yeah, you see somebody that's vulnerable and hurting and oppressed and injustices are happening. I'm a God of justice. I care about the marginalized and the victimized and the vulnerable. You stand back and just watch that happen. And not only that, you jump on top of it And gain from it? Yep, I got some problems with that. So the last strike against them was this. When they saw the injustice, when they saw the oppression, they actually did nothing. They actually boasted in it. They gained from it, and then they actually were like, applauding it. They're like doing the wave. They're like, yes, let's get all on board with this. God's saying, I'm ticked off at you because you stood by, you did nothing, you victimized them even more, and then you stood by and applauded the destruction of my kids and boasted in it. So these 21 verses, they're a message from God through his mouthpiece, Obadiah, not, check this out, this is like one of the few that God is actually saying, like, this is not delivered straight to the Israelites, right, to the, to the Edomites, it's a different group of people, same family right so so it's even though that's the case even though we know that obadiah is addressing the edomites it's it's actually it's actually a message to the israelites to those that are left to those that are wounded and beat down and broken they're tossing in the towel they're throwing up their hands they're saying god where is the justice god we see the system is broken God, what are you doing in this? God, how can you let them get away with this? And after seeing what we just went through, God, where are you? And then God sends Obadiah with these 21 verses, 670 words to say very simply and yet very profoundly. I've been paying attention. I've been paying close attention. And I've taken note of a prideful people that stood by when you were victimized and you were oppressed, doing nothing, nothing to even lift a finger that mocked you in your pain and your suffering and then cut you down and slaughtered you and boasted about it. I've been paying attention. And so this is a message of hope for those that cry out, where is our help? Where is it going to come from? Where is the justice? When will the oppression end? And God's saying, I know when. See, a lot of people look at the, the prophets and, and you go straight to them and, and you hear God saying, I'm going to destroy you forever. I'm going to take a group of people and destroy them forever. Right, we have we even here. Let's just be real honest. We have a hard time reconciling that God loves. He, did, he creates, he, but he's going to destroy forever. And so we wrestle with some of that. And, and trust me, outside of the walls of this church, people, critics will look at the prophets and go, how can you believe in that type of God? A God that's going to destroy a group of people single-handedly forever. But when you really understand the story, you go, this is one of the most loving stories that could ever take place because it's a loving and perfect heavenly father saying, I'm going to stand up for my family and for my kids, right? I'm going to create something here for them. I'm going to speak a message. It's going to be hard, but I love. And so so because I love, I got, I got to... I got to discipline a little bit so imagine this just imagine this i'm not saying it's true it's hypothetical right what is true is i do have three children okay right and and I'll, i'll tell you i have three perfect beautiful children right so let's just imagine this hypothetically let's say at some point they're not perfect it's impossible i'm a pastor they're pastor's kids they're going to be perfect okay we get it so let's say at some point because hypothetically i don't have you know perfect kids let's say at some point i actually have to step in and discipline my children which I don't because they're perfect, right? So in this hypothetical situation, let's say eight year old is just, and five year old, they're going at it like aliens versus predators. Okay. It's getting like, they're, they're, they're becoming something they're even not. And they're just going at it. Right. If that did happen from time to time. Right. And I, as a father stood back and did nothing. You would go, what type of father are you? What type of loving father? That doesn't even make sense. Do you not have any sense of justice or discipline? Are you not going to throw that into the equation? Can you imagine what would happen if they're like 17 and 13 and still going at it like that? So I have to step in. Our job as parents is to teach and to train. So here's the deal. Let's just say we're observing this hypothetical situation between my children, my perfect children. And it, but it's getting like medieval for them, right? It's going, it's, it's right. And, and, and like you guys are observing this and, and you guys just sat back and applauded right? You're like, Ooh, yeah. Or worse. You guys try to step in and like actually discipline my kids. Like that's not going to go well. Like that's my deal. I'm the father. It's my job. Okay. And so I step in, right? I'd be like, it's my problem. It's my family. These are my kids. It's a family thing. Right? So you can't just pile on. You can't just jump in. Imagine if like the two and a half year old was just like piled on and, and caused more troubles and like applauded, like the decimation of the five-year-old. Right? So you can't just pile things on here, but I got to step in as a loving father and discipline. Right. And sometimes that discipline is tough. I mean, sometimes I got to look at my five-year-old and I'll destroy you forever. That's what it's going to be like, son. Right. Because here's what you did to your sister. Right. He's like, oh, dad, I'm perfect, though. But, but how much more loving is it for me to step in and actually discipline and actually set the story straight between my family? And, and this is God's family here. So from the outside, you might go like, it doesn't seem to add up. God's saying he's going to destroy. And, but it's discipline. And, and God does that because he has a sense of justice. We might call him critical and vengeful and a wrathful God, but couldn't be further from the truth in terms of how you perceive this story. It's actually the most loving thing that he could do to step in and say, no, I I speak into, I care about oppression and injustice. And when I see the victimized and the marginalized being oppressed, and when I see you, you sitting down, church, when I see you, church, doing nothing, I might have some words for you. I might cut you down a little bit. I might bring you down to size because I care about it. And we're going to go on. I mean, most of the stories that we're going to hear about is going to be this. It's going to be a loving father disciplining his kids saying, return to me. Return your hearts to me. Remember that covenant that we entered into a long time ago? Let's come back to that because you've wandered. Your heart has wandered. So God's always going to jump. These are actually some of the most loving things that 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 a father could say. So it begs the question, how do we not become like the Edomites? How do we not find ourselves a part of this story on the, on the bad side of the story? Simple truth is, just be honest, I could care less, you could care less about some war that happened in 586 B.C. We don't care about that, right? We, we don't care about how it started and who didn't help who. We don't Whatever, we're, we're going to forget about the details after we, walk, after we walk out of the room honestly, right? I just want to make sure, we just want to make sure that we don't find ourselves doing the same thing that's happening in these 21 verses that God says, I'm going to cut you down. I'm going to destroy you forever. So let me give you a few quick things and we're going to kind of, kind of wrap up. These are things that you can walk out of here and you can do, and you can practice. The first one is this. When you look at your position, when you look at the things that you have, the wealth that you've accumulated, the success that you've achieved, don't take pride in it. Be humble about it. Be humble about your position. And let's be honest. It's tough for us we we, we can be like the edomites we're rich we're powerful we're successful we've accumulated a vast amount of wealth and it's easy for us to make it about us right we think we made this happen for ourselves so be humble in your position be dependent upon god simple truth is most of us don't set out to go against god do we most of us don't set out to go against god we just don't have a sense that we need to depend on him because we've taken pride in our position we've made it about ourselves So we're not trying to go against God. We're just like, I don't really need to depend on him because I've done this for myself. So we need to be humble. We need to acknowledge that it all comes from God, that it all belongs to God. And he's given it to us for a purpose to be used for his kingdom and his glory. The next thing is this. We see a need. We don't respond with feelings. God doesn't care how you feel about it. God doesn't care if you're going to post it on Facebook and go, I really feel about this i don't care how are you going to how are you going to act about how are you going to respond that's what god wants from us how are you actually going to respond to it because feeling is just standing aloof doing nothing right we might feel good people might like our facebook posts i really care about you know this situation i feel a lot about it but god's saying no actually do right it's super easy to feel something for those around us that have needs Those are who are impoverished or marginalized or oppressed. It's an entirely different thing to actually act and respond with compassion and reach out and and move. I want to share a story of a friend of mine, Brittany Wong. Um, It's a cool story. She she saw a need. I'm sure she felt something about it. It's part of the story, but she acted and she moved. And so I want you to watch this video and and see how she responded with compassion and, and grace.
1: I wanted to help people, and I really wanted to help Diane even more than the 235 or whatever I had given her. so it was September and I was coming home from a design conference in Dallas and I had a layover in Seattle. It's a big city so there's a lot of homeless people and people come up to you asking for money and people holding signs asking for money and um, it was just kind of overwhelming. She had a sign that said, need money for food. And it was small and she wasn't asking for anything, it was just her sign. and. And I got about halfway down the block and I asked my husband, um, do you think she really needed money for food? And he said, well, yeah, probably, but I don't have any money. But I had a couple dollars and so I fished it out of my wallet and turned back around and put it in her cup, but it wasn't really enough. And my husband set a really good example for me and he asked her what her name was. And she said her name was Diane. And so we introduced ourselves and... Talked with her for a few minutes and um, she said she was just always so darn hungry, and I just remember her saying that. So, some people don't like to give money to homeless people um, because they're worried that the person's going to use the money to buy drugs or alcohol. Um, and I guess that's true, but it's not really up to me to judge that. Um, I just need to do what the Lord's asking me to do. And so I started thinking about how I could help Diane a little bit more and I decided to design a t-shirt and I was going to raise money for the Seattle Union Gospel Mission in honor of Diane. I designed the shirt and the shirt says help those with nothing because they only dream of expecting anything. and was a phrase that my best friend told me and I was kind of hesitant because the word expecting is a little weird and um, I started thinking about it and I really do expect things. I expect to have dinner and I expect to have a place to sleep and um, some people don't have those things and so I decided to go with that and I designed the shirt and by the Lord's blessing I sold almost 30 and we raised over $500. So when the time came to donate the money, I went to the Gospel Mission's website and they were having a matching grant. And I started thinking about like the loaves and the fishes, because all throughout the process of the project, the Lord had just really stretched the dollar from getting a better deal on the t-shirts than I expected to, to shipping not costing as much, and then all of a sudden there was this matching grant, so the $542 that we raised was doubled. To almost 1100
0: and meals at the mission only cost $1.90, so a lot of lives could be changed. I love it. I love it because feelings don't get, just feeling there doesn't get you. It doesn't, it doesn't move you. Right? I love that story. And I love the story because it's something that probably every single one of us have encountered, haven't we? And we've thought the same thoughts, haven't we? If I give them money, I don't know. Maybe they they go get lit. So I'd be wrong. I shouldn't do that. Don't hear me wrong. God very much cares for the souls of those people and he longs to redeem and restore them, free them from addiction and wandering and hopelessness. His heart breaks for people like that. He's super mad at every single one of us that stand aloof and say, I won't do anything. I'm worried that they're going to use use it to go by. So I just I won't do anything. He cares for those people. And he's pretty upset at us because we saw a need, and all too often we maybe we make an excuse and we do nothing. Man, that's we could probably just be done there, right? How's that for fun today? Man, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the victims—they don't need our feelings. They need our actions. We have to ask ourselves, are we taking all the things that God has blessed us with? And are we investing them on us? Are we taking our security? Are we taking pride in that? We're saying, like, I'm going to take what I have and get more of what I want. Or are we taking what God has given to us, releasing it for his kingdom to be used for his glory, to restore and redeem those that are marginalized victims? No matter how we feel about it, Jesus is calling us to action, not feelings. Here's a simple truth. You're not going to solve the world's hunger problems. You're not. I'll tell you that right now. You might solve one person's hunger problems, though. And you're not going to end injustice and oppression in the world for the whole world. But you might step up and take action and end it for one person last thing is this when we see oppression and we see injustice, we need to respond with brokenness to see life not what we can gain from it and to make sure that we're taken care of that, that everything is secure for us we've got a plan we love plans here don't we church we've got a plan about how we're going to provide for ourselves, but to look at the world and say, God, would you break my heart would you would you create brokenness in me when something breaks your heart, would it break my heart what what and who you weep for, would I weep for them too? Would you move me beyond feelings, but would you create in me a heart that would take action? I'm not going to pretend what I know. I don't know what that looks like for each and every one of you. I know what it looks like for me. But the question would be, given the riches and the resources to steward God's kingdom, the things that he's given you, what are you investing that in? Our feelings are a great excuse to do nothing, right? Right? And and here's how this works for us. Here's how it works for us. You know, we're not going to end up in this kind of situation where we're like in this kind of family feud. We've been called to a mission, right? We've been called to embrace the mission of of restoration and reconciliation. God's called us to take the gospel to the places that it it isn't, to take them deeply into those places and, and speak truth, speak life and speak hope into people. That have none. And if we're just going to sit back and take pride in the things that we've accumulated, God's got to break that pride in our hearts first. And then the only way that we're going to step into injustice and oppression is before he can, he's got to break our pride first. You guys, we have a mission as the church. We have neighbors. We have a city. We have people that are living apart from Christ, that are dying apart from Christ. Talk about being victimized and marginalized. Your soul in eternity separated from God. I don't know if there's anything worse than how sin ravages us. We can go out and speak gospel truth and bring life. We pray. Father, we thank you for these beautiful words that you spoke to your kids, to your family, to the Edomites, who you love, to the Israelites, who you love. And God, there's a message in there for us today as the church to realize, God, you've called this to mission. You've called this to a ministry where you move and you bring life and hope and recon- reconciliation and, and you restore your kingdom, and we take the gospel to those places where it isn't. In order for us to do that, God, we've got to we've got to get rid of our pride. We have to we have to have more than feelings about it. We actually have to step out in faith and say, Yes, God, we want to live out this mission in our life. We thank you, Father, in your name we pray. Amen.